Hey everybody, Darcy here. This is the third part of our three-part Dyatlov Pass series, so if you haven't listened to parts one and two, please be sure to go and do that, because this will make no sense and Yevgeny will not get the credit he deserves. If you guys liked uh, the style of these longer multi-part episodes, let us know. Uh, continue to send in suggestions. We've gotten multiple suggestions in the past couple weeks that we've already looked into and we will be recording episodes soon. Uh, so we appreciate everybody who's reached out with those. Uh, thanks for all the rates and reviews and follows. And without further ado, the finale of the three-part Love Pass series. Have a good Monday. Here is, I want to hear what your theory, what do you think is the most two theories? Okay. I should say equally, I think if I had time to digest and go over like everything, it might be different, but this is just off the cuff. But I know from your initial one, I am totally buying into your Uden's take on it, that they were somewhere they weren't supposed to be. And someone who, I'm not saying they were KGB. I'm saying someone who had reason enough to be protected Mm-hmm. factually from the government from getting in trouble attacked these people and tried to make the so essentially tried to make it look like it the whole site didn't make any sense so you're saying someone intentionally made it look all chaotic, like a group like, of guys with weapons like like yeah. all were like you take them make them go that way make them look like they died doing this the right. other ones went over and like they were aggressive and that's why some of the hikers mm-hmm. are in a different location got the crap beat out of them Right. With all the trauma and stuff. So that's one thing. Okay. The other one thing is that one, I think it's most likely one or two of the people, they were in an area they weren't supposed to be because they got lost or something mm-hmm. with extremely high levels of radiation. Someone snapped inside the tent and like thought they were, for some reason, like being in a tent outside is pretty scary. I'm pretty scared inside, <laughs> inside a house, house right now, fully lit in a safe area. <laughs> um, being in a tent in the middle of a snowstorm, in the middle of nowhere, like miles from civilization, is probably pretty scary. And if you have any reason to start to kind of go insane, yeah, I can see you going insane really, like a slippery slope, really fast. Right. And so I see them losing it, ripping out of the tent. I think that would be the person who makes the gash in the tent is the radio runs outside and i would think it's one of the four people who got trauma and he they started attacking yeah so some people ran after him and there was a a fight Mm -hmm. i think it's a 37 year old guy because it fits my in my head (laughs) because he's got beat tattoos yeah yeah (laughs) he fits the the mo even though that's in a movie he would be the guy you think it is yeah but then it's like luda yeah but in real life it's generally the most you know, obvious is usually. The, yeah. 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 Obviously the twist. Um, and then everyone else was like, we're screwed and tried to like, or ran out initially and then got lost or wind blown or something like mm-hmm. that, which okay. would be the person going insane. I'm not saying they just ran and people ran after them. Something happened with the person going insane that would cause everyone to leave the gotcha. tent without shoes. Okay. That's my idea. So okay. one or two people lost it, destroyed the tent, and uh, basically the whole fiasco. So the author, Donnie Eicher, has in his book multiple of the theories, and he explains why he, he like he explains the theory and why he doesn't believe it's the real theory. Okay. Each one? Yeah. So we've got basically- Does he include what he thinks happened? Yes. We'll get to what That's he thinks amazing. happened. I'm yeah. so excited. And he went to the actual location and everything. So. I was going to say, he he would be the guy. I'd probably be like, yeah. Right. So basically he says, my entire strategy thus far has been the process of elimination. Not unlike mm-hmm. the oft quote maxim of Sherlock Holmes, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. In that spirit, I have been able to eliminate the following theories with a satisfying degree of certainty. Number one, Mansi attack. Though initially considered a viable angle in the 1959 investigation, it was quickly discarded. At the time of the incident, the nearest Mansi settlement was 60 miles away. 
Besides, the Mansi needed to stay away from the Halachal Mountains. There was no hunting to be had on its bare face, nor did it hold any religious or sacred value to the group. I was going to say, that one seemed very fact-checkable. Right. Aside from there being zero evidence, physical or otherwise, of a native attack, such behavior is not the nature of the Mansi. They are a historically peaceful people, a fact evident in their generous assistance from the beginning of the search efforts. I'm totally cool with that answer also. I think that that makes a lot of sense. I don't think that there would, with all the evidence and history of them being peaceful, I don't think that they <clears throat> just went out and murdered like nine people. Yeah. On a whim. I mean, any group of people, there are bad eggs. Right. But, but I think I can agree with him in terms of a level of certainty that it wasn't that. Yeah. Theory number two Avalanche. I have been able to judge the steepness of the slope for myself firsthand. In, additional me- in addition, measurements of the incline pointed to an avalanche in the area being unlikely, if not impossible. There are no records of an avalanche occurring on Halachal Mountains, certainly not in the 54 years since the tragedy. Furthermore, investigators who had visited the slopes in 1959, including Ivanov and Meslenica, or Yevgeny, I should say, had not entertained an avalanche the as a man. possibility, nor had they found any indications of one. After all, the tent had been found largely intact and s- secured to the ground. During my own research on the subject, I contacted Bruce Temper, one of the foremost experts on avalanches in the U- U.S. He is the director of the Forest Service Utah Avalanche Center and author of Staying Alive in Avalanche Terrain. After reviewing the data, he concluded... Yeah, Bruce Temper. Yeah, you know. Everyone yeah, why knows. do you have to explain it? I, I don't even know why I had to add his credits exactly. because everyone knows who Bruce... Tremper is. Oh, Tremper. Uh, I mean, of course. It is Tremper. Excuse me. I misspoke originally. It's Tremper. Bruce Tremper on Twitter. <laughs> I don't know what his Twitter handle is. He concluded, It is highly unlikely that an avalanche hit the hiker's tent or surrounding area. Given all of the above, it is surprising that the theory continues to have such staying power among skeptics. So I also I think that makes sense. I mean, everything was organized inside the tent. The tent was still on the ground. And it didn't... I mean... A tent does not stand withstand an avalanche, and the objects inside do not just stay. That's why, yeah. I don't think there'd be neatly sorted shoes. Uh, Theory number three, high winds. The hikers had been warned about dangerous winds in the past, most notably by Vijay Forrester Ivan Rempel, who had told stories of locals being swept away. This was also an angle seriously considered by investigators at the time. The idea was that one or two persons outside the tent, who's presumably wearing the clothes the cloth boot liners had stepped outside possibly to urinate when an overpowering wind took them by surprise. Their cries roused those inside the tent, not only to jump outside to save them, but also to cut through the canvas in their haste. But this theory supposes that all the hikers would have, would have flung themselves into the wind to save their friends one by one, needless of the dangers. This does not seem likely. One of the hikers would surely have to put on a pair of shoes. The theory also requires the winds to have been powerful enough to blow all nine hikers off the face of the mountain, yet not strong enough to blow away the tent or Rustic's knit hat, which he was found wearing when his body was discovered. Yeah, I definitely don't buy that. So if someone steps out to urinate, yeah, I assume they open the front door. Yeah. If they're urinating outside with the door open, yeah, why would you have to tear a hole in the back wall? Yeah, uh, yeah right. It's... it's that one it seems the most like that the one worst you don't, you don't one to me. Yeah. Mostly because I agree with it, the state of the bodies. Right. And the shoes. Uh and also it's determined that the winds would just wouldn't be high enough. Like they the To just yaw someone. <laughs> yeah, to just yeet someone into the woods. Uh theory number four, armed men. There we Despite go. all evidence to the contrary, the theory that a group of armed men, either Soviet military or escaped prisoners, led the hikers to their deaths is a stubborn one that has continued to plague the Dyatlov case. Although this scenario has been briefly considered by Lev Ivanov and his investigators, most notably after knife slashes at the back of the tent were discovered, it was largely dismissed after the cuts were determined to have been made from inside the tent. Additionally, only nine sets of footprints were found at the scene. There was no evidence, from tracks or otherwise, of visitors to the tent that night. There was zero reports of the time of prisoners having escaped from any of the surrounding camps, the closest of which was over 50 miles away. Claims that some of the missing hikers' belongings had been gone are overstated. After examining the criminal case file, I found that the toy hedgehog, which Yuri Yudin believed to be missing, in fact had been found among the hikers' belongings. So Yuri Yudin believed that, uh, I believe, I think it was uh, Luda, 
mm-hmm. had like a toy hedgehog that he said was never in, like you know how he went to the uh FBI, the evidence the, yeah and he like sifted through their stuff he said it was missing yeah but it turns out that it later and he was like someone must have took it that's why he believed our men but it turns out it was just misplaced and that is actually evidence that has been discovered okay don't you also have to don't we also have to take like all of this anything said by the law enforcement with right. like, yeah, like kind of a great if assault. your government's like yeah right don't investigate it anymore right for sure for sure for sure for sure um to explain the forensic examiner's discovery of violent injuries on the three hikers' bodies including hemorrhaging multiple multiple rib fractures and a fractured skull one needn't look further than the ravine in which the bodies were found the 24 foot high precipice on one side of the ravine at an incline between 50 and 60 degrees would have given the four hikers who had happened upon it in the pitch darkness a nasty fall Given that there were rocks at the bottom of the ravine, just a few inches beneath the snow, the resulting injuries would have been serious enough for Ivanov to compare the impact to a, quote, large directional force, such as a car. Ivanov, however, was not a doctor or an expert in such injuries. Additionally, the forensic examiner's conclusion that three of the deaths had been violent is consistent with lethal fall with a lethal fall into a ravine. Oh, so it's basically more or less pretty much like they were just running in the dark, fell off a cliff, more or less. That's boring. It is boring. It's much more fun to think it's. <laughs> there was uh, someone. However, it, that still doesn't someone. explain the the blunt force trauma on the head of uh, Doroshenko. No, it doesn't. So, there's your fun. <laughs> That's fun. That's a blast. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then he is saying that Luda is missing her tongue because of microfauna in the water decomposing the fleshiest parts of the body that were exposed, mm-hmm. which I, makes sense to me. It does, but how come no one else's tongues are gone? That's Especially true. the people that were found with her. Uh, that's true. I don't know if they maybe were. Because like, those people are so decayed that they couldn't even tell who they were. That's true. But like, I'm wondering if it, maybe it's like they weren't in contact with the water in the same way. I don't know. She could also could have bit her tongue off. That's Yeah, maybe the fall. She could have. Mm-hmm. That would, I mean, that makes sense. Uh, theory number five, weapons testing. Rocket tests slash, quote, orbs. Uh, <laughs> I like that they're grouped together. Yeah. There's one thing that, like, very much was tested that time and is a real thing, and fire orbs. <laughs> <laughs> fire orbs in a planet. Yeah. It's like it could have been um, a plane crash or it could have been a giant thunderbird. <laughs> <laughs> it could have been a phoenix rising from. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was so, either an alligator attack or a dragon. <laughs> so he hadn't been able to say publicly while he was investigating the case, but Lev Ivanov had believed the orb sightings of February 1959 to be connected to the hiker's death. After his retirement in 1990, he interviewed a journalist, Esk Bogomolov. He revealed, Yep. <laughs> I can't tell for sure whether those orbs were weapons or not, but I'm certain that they were directly related to the death of hikers. That same year, in a lengthy letter to Leminsky Put newspaper on November 22nd, he connected the orbs to the violent inquiries of the three hikes, hikers. Someone wanted to intimidate people or show off power, and so they did so by killing three hikers. They unleashed the fire orbs. <laughs> the fire demons. I know all details in this event and can say the only that only those who were inside the orbs know more than I do. Whether they were people Wait, inside. What? He thinks that it's like UFOs, orbs. Oh, I'm thinking it's a ball of fire. Well, that's what just sentiently flying around. around. Well, I guess he thinks it's hikers. like a ball of fire, but inside the fire are aliens, more or less, is what it sounds but like. But the fire doesn't saying. burn anything. It yeah. just beats the crap out of people. He said whether there were people inside, and I'm saying that with air quotes, whether there were people inside that time or any time is yet unclear. Ivanov was reluctant to say whether or not he thought the orbs were some kind of weapon, preferring instead to talk in vague terms of energy bundles unexplained by modern science. I hate that. Yeah. But elsewhere, yeah, I swear that noise was a couple of energy bundles in your bathroom. Bathroom bundles? I mean, this that's like, probably why your light won't turn off. It's, got, it's filled with energy <laughs> bundles. It's filled with people and fireballs. So... Elsewhere in the letter, he maintained that the investigation showed that the Aflov case was not related to the military... With a Cold War going on, the classified rockets launches would not have been unusual in 1959, and indeed there had been such tests in February and March of that year, but none would have affected the Dyatlov hikers on the night of February 1st and 2nd. In fact, there was no evidence... Why does... How... They're classified. What do you mean? (laughs) In fact, there's no evidence of any unusual sightings on that night. 
The purported light orb sightings of early February were more accurately seen mid-month, and the hiker Georgie Otmanaki had originally told investigators he had seen the orbs during the first week of February, but his companions on the same trip later confirmed that the date was much later, February 17th. This coincides with Ivdel witnesses who report seeing lights in the sky on the same day. For many, including relatives of the hikers, it had been tempting to connect the mid-month sightings with the tragedy on the 1st. The orb sightings of February 1st and March 31st, as described by numerous witnesses, happened within minutes of corresponding rocket tests from the Baycourt testing site. So basically, the author is saying, we can match these dates up with actual rocket testing, which would explain what they were seeing, and it is not near the time of the deaths of the hikers. Yeah. And then people think UFOs because of the last photo taken. It's on the website. The last photo taken is just like, it's just the blurriest, like, worst photo ever. UFO photo. Yeah. And, okay, so this is what he says. The final, fo- the final photo taken on Georgie's camera featuring an unknown light source has fueled much speculation about the hikers having encountered weapons testing or UFOs. I myself have been tempted to connect this photo to something the hikers have been trying to photograph in their final hours. I determined that the octagonal shape in the center is a flare resulting from the eight blades on the camera's aperture. So the source of light is nearly impossible to d- uh, determine. Yeah. It's just like eight vague circles. <laughs> it could have been them taking a picture of like a campsite. Yeah, it could have been, but it's like so out of focus and blurry that you can't really see anything. So it is a little spooky that it was taken by yeah, like the them, and it clearly looks like it's, I would say, at night. Right. That's what you and think. there um, is a large body of light illuminating is what that's I true. am seeing. So that part is the only, the only creepy part but the, i'm not saying that's a ufo the only question or, i'm having sorry, is fire orb <laughs> is it nighttime or is it just the aperture on the camera like starting to open when the camera was like you know what i'm saying oh, like, it could just be the lens. Up with the camera yeah it could just be because like, also camera. it's 1950 whatever and the cameras probably suck right so i don't know you really can't use that in any useful way like it's it doesn't hold up in a courtroom for sure for sure so radiation related testing this picture was taken on February 1st? Yeah, that picture was taken then, like, right... F- that is... That's the last one before they go dark. I just got chills. Yeah, isn't that creepy? When I learned that. It's the, literally their last photo is this, like, vague... Hike orb. into nothing. Oh, no. Okay, yeah. But still. Yeah. Scary. Yeah. I'm also oh, you're on, like, the, 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 the ski way. picture yeah, into yeah, that's, nothingness. That's, that's them ascending the mountain to go set up camp. On the 1st of February. On the 1st of February. The night. Yeah. So that night. That's the day of the mystery. And it stands to reason that that night is when. Yeah, they all died. That's like happened. the yeah. day of their death. It's the last. Yeah. Spooky. Big spooky. And it, see, it doesn't even have to be a spooky death. If you see a picture of someone the day they died. It's creepy. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And um, I'm seeing one right now live. Folks, <laughs> and it's great for you, a listener. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should hit up mondaymorningmacabre.com. And go to the episodes. Yeah. So, um, radiation-related testing findings. Uh, the radiation that... Had Wait, been t- hold on. So, is this still another theory? This is just more information regarding the radiation because that's become such a Okay, so that's point. not part of his theory? No, none of this none is part of, this of his... Is part. These are all... I'm very interested to see... I can't even yeah. think of anything else. Right. So, these are all theories he's debunking, basically. He's going to be like, one of them drank the wrong kind of juice. Honestly, that's a theory. <laughs> Which juice? Is, not juice. Moonshine. But we can that one of them it. drank moonshine and just decided to kill everyone? No, they think that they all might have shared like a bad a batch bad. of moonshine. Yeah, that's that's a theory. We can, I like that one. <laughs> all right. I don't know why they would and have bad moonshine. That's episode one. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. Goodbye. <laughs> so this is what the author finds in regards to the radiation testing because it has become such a sticking point to skeptics mm-hmm. or to like conspiracy theorists being like why was there the radiation? opposite of skeptics <laughs> yeah so the radiation to be detected on the hikers clothing is largely responsible for the idea that some weapon potentially nuclear in nature had exploded above or near the campsite and had forced the hikers from their tent causing injury and affecting their vision after the autopsies two sets of hikers clothes tested two to three times higher than normal for radiation i submitted these test results to dr christopher strauss associate professor of radiology at the university of chicago medical center to find out if the original verdict would hold up dr strauss was able to determine upon first glance that by today's scientific understanding of radiation levels the beta particle decay cited in the criminal case for the hikers clothing was nowhere near an abnormal range 
They would have led. They would have had to be fifty to a hundred times the level detected to reach dangerous or alarming abnormal. I levels. thought you said they were double. They were double of what the Soviets at the time believed. Oh, and so now modern. modern day, they're like, yo, they were. Did I drink that for breakfast? <laughs> yeah, basically. Like this is in your like Quaker Oats in the morning. Yeah. So we have to be 50 to 100 times the level detected to reach dangerous and alarmingly abnormal levels of radiation. The slight positive result at the hikers' clothing could easily be explained by an environmental contaminant. For example, radiation from nuclear tests conducted the winter on the islands of basically islands 850 miles away. It just like blew in the wind. Yeah, could have just kind of got on their clothes. Okay, first of all, um, nuclear by nature. You said that. That's a great name for a podcast. Second of <laughs> all, nuclear by nature. I like it. Why is only one person's stuff nuclear by nature? <laughs> That's a good question. Like, and not even like one sweater. It's right. just cooking. Just cooking in that nuki. <laughs> She's got the nuki cooks. She's got. <laughs> yep. She's got that uki nuki good sweater, <laughs> and no one else's stuff is even hot. Uh,. <clears throat> that is not so explained, but it could just be. I I have read online that it was Uki Nuki before they. Were yeah, that hiking. two of the individuals had worked at a chemical plant. That'll could, do it, right? So that could explain it. Yeah. Um, but that is not mentioned here. Uh, additionally, the dark or orange color of the hiker's skin is more plausibly explained as a severe tan or sunburn rather than exposure to radiation. Uh, before becoming buried in the snow, the bodies had likely been laid out for many days. Even with no sun, UV rays would have penetrated the cloud cover. Uh, Dr. Reed Brosen, medical director of Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center, advanced response team, and an expert in wilderness medicine and hypothermia, explained to me that with the altitude, UV light, and 0% humidity, the bodies could have become mummified over time. The, I actually kind of see that, yeah. Yeah, I think that is... You know, that tracks, that tracks, exactly, it tracks. And then <laughs> theory number six is just labeled, it's classified. Many Diathlov case enthusiasts, the Diathlov Foundation's Yuri Kunsevich among them, still believes the answer to the Diathlov mystery lives in a classified government documents that have yet to be released. However, the behavior of both Soviet and Russian officials hardly points to the existence of secret files. Per Soviet law, criminal case files were to be stored in the prosecutor's office for 25 years. If no appeals were filed for the case during that time, the entire case could be legally destroyed. The Soviet government had its chance to completely destroy the Diatlov case files, but it chose not to, despite the fact that there were no appeals filed for 25 years after the close of the case. The Sverdlov's prosecutor's office chose to leave the case files intact in their archives. The files were later released in the late 1980s and early 90s during Glasnost, which is like a where a bunch of the Stalin archives were released. Mm -hmm. It was like a, a time period. Thereby revealing many incidents deeply embarrassing for the country's government, including the 1962 Novocharkovsk massacre in which Soviet troops with machine guns bowed down a group of factory protesters. What would be so special about nine hikers dying in northern Urals? Conspiracies conspiracists will likely never give up on the theory of government cover-up, but the idea of the Russian government is holding on to secret files is implausible. Why is it implausible? <laughs> I Well, he's I saying... I believe that so easily. If anyone was like, yeah, there's no I, way a government could keep <laughs> files from people. Are you serious? Well what, well, what he's saying is like, they had the opportunity to destroy them because there was never an, like any kind of... There, they had a law where, like, if there was no appeal in 25 years, they could destroy the files, and they never destroyed them, even though there was no appeal. Giving the idea being why, if they didn't destroy them, then obviously they weren't hiding anything, is the theory. But I, I, don't I mean, buy they could that. have also just made a like decoy set of documents. The what's his name coming back from Moscow and being like, we should like, yeah, being like, like being hey, very different. Yeah, stop talking about it. The government being like, first of all, the kid like. Government agents clearly being at the funerals and being like, you're yeah. not having a funeral, like right. a big funeral. Being very sketchy about it. I can see it being like a government trying to suppress large gatherings. Yeah. Which is common for... Especially a Russian government. Yeah, like dictator type yeah, of things yeah. going on. But that and then just like the nonsense that they it appeared that people got from the government when investigating this, being like, don't. Just like, stop. Right. Makes me kind of surprised they even went through with anything. But... That makes me think that, like, I don't trust any kind of thing. Like, I know they had to keep it. Right. It's Russia. Like, files can get deleted and burned easily. And 
obviously they're not uh, like a, <laughs> a history of leaders with good moral standing. I agree. I do think this is kind of his weakest like cop out. Yeah. That's why I'm still very excited to hear what he has to think. Yeah. He, uh, so he just blew one of mine out of the water and then another one of mine not really not really so much blown out of the water like i the radiation thing where it's like today like yeah that's probably in your cell I phone would, yeah <laughs> I, would believe, I was gonna say i believe that a little more um his last theory that he debunks is space aliens etc i thought you were gonna say <laughs> I was gonna, that was his no, no, no. like fuck this dude why did we just waste all the time <laughs> So there were, of course, those who put forth interstellar visitations to the answer to Sherlock Holmes's whatever remains, however improbable. But I was holding out hope that I could find an explanation that didn't involve extraterrestrials. I'm not saying I don't entertain the idea of life existing out there somewhere in the vast universe. But if one is going to fall back on malevolent alien visitors without backing it up with evidence, one as well, one as well may throw ghosts, uh, the hand of God and devious subterranean gnomes into the mix. Aliens are off the table. I mean, yeah, I think that's fair. <laughs> So, his idea is that the least improbable answer still seemed to lie, if not in an avalanche, then some sort of other natural occurrence. He says, I have been reading up on, wind, on weather phenomena in the hopes I might discover something relevant to the case, something I managed to miss. I'd always enjoyed reading about bizarre weather events, etc. Uh, I'll skip that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't need it. I don't to, care about his hobbies. Yeah. Um, so... Among the articles I had printed out relating to weather was one in particular piece that I thought might be related to the topics of experimental weapons, infrasound. Wow. Oh, I thought you were going to say infrastructure. No, infrasound weaponry in particular. It was a piece from a Physics Today issue from 2000. The piece in question, entitled Atmospheric Infrasound, was written by Dr. Alfred J. Bedard Jr. and Thomas M. Georges. I wasn't entirely sure what the title meant, though though it intrigued me. The study examined the, uh, the occurrence of sound waves that travel through the air at frequencies below those on an audible spectrum. Wait, so this is what he thinks happened? Yeah, this is an explanation of, this is part of it. He's saying he was looking into natural phenomena and he came across this thing called infrasound, which mm-hmm. is the sound waves that travel, which is sound waves that travel through the air at frequencies below those on the audible spectrum. Frequencies referred to as infrasound. Infrasound is the opposite of ultrasound. It occurs below the threshold of human hearing at 20 hertz, which ultrasound frequencies fall above hearing at the threshold of 20,000 hertz. Okay. So he's like, this is an interesting thing, this infrasound. An inaudible sound. Right, right. Exactly. Which is kind of hard like to grasp. Right. You can't... Inaudible sound. Yeah, like, it's it not like in our spectrum of actually like the it's hearing... It's like infrared or right, ultraviolet. Exactly. Right, right. So... A pioneer in the biological field of infrasound was a Russian-born French scientist, Vladimir Gavro, who discovered its impacts on the body entirely by accident during the 1960s. Gavro and his laboratory assistants share, started exper- experiencing inexplicable nausea, pain in their eardrums, and shaking lab equipment, all with no apparent cause. When all chemical and airborne sources were ruled out, Gavro eventually concluded that inaudible low-frequency sound waves were being generated by the motor of a large fan and duct system in the building where his lab was located. What initially started off as a subconscious irritation soon became a scientific pursuit for Gavro, but it was a difficult one for him to pursue, as no traditional microphone could pick up the frequencies and exposing himself and his assistants to the infrasound resulted in severe illness, sometimes lasting days. Gavro determined that he and his assistants were suffering from the pressurized effects of infrasonic frequencies pulsating through their eardrums. These low-frequency waves can cause the eardrum to vibrate the hair cells of the inner ear. The effect of this is that although the sound may not be audible to the casual listener, the excited hair cells in the inner ear send impulses to the brain, and this disconnect between apparent silence and the brain receiving signals from the ear can be extremely disruptive to the body. So he's like, okay, this is interesting. I'm getting into this infrasound stuff. And is this a... Have you looked at... Are you getting to something like this being a modern proven? Yes. So this is something that exists. Infrasound's real. Infrasound is real and it can cause, and like, um, so uh, people who may work around large machinery are exposed to it. Well, actually a lot of governments are using it as like riot control. So like Israel has used it for instance, to like dispatch like rioters by like rolling up with these like vans with auto. Oh, I've seen those. It's like a big, yep. Looks like almost like a microphone. I mean, a megaphone right. type of thing. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And they just it plays. You can't hear it, but like it just you just feel awful, and everyone 
just like leaves. That is so creepy. Yeah, it's it's like pretty terrifying. It's like they're shooting ghosts through you. Yeah, you're getting shot with ghosts. <laughs> that's that's what I'm trying to say. That's what his what if his theory was like. Okay, Ghostbusters is real. It's a <laughs> and documentary. There's ghosts shooting through these people. <laughs> so, you know, like the Israel government. Yeah, he actually goes on to talk about this. I learned that man-made sources of infrasound were numerous, cooling and ventilation systems and wind farms being typical culprits, but these low-frequency waves also occur in nature as byproducts of earthquakes, landslides, meteors, storms, and tornadoes. The Bedard Georgia study outlined and studied these infrasonic occurrences in nature, in particular when winds of a certain speed encounter an obstructive landscape. I later learned that this naturally occurring infrasound could be devastating to to humans, causing nausea, severe illness, psychological disturbances, and even suicide. Symptoms not unlike those the- uh, theoretically produced by experimental infrasound weaponry. So, Donnie Eicher, like, hears about this infrasound thing, and he's like, hey, I'm going to go to a bunch of scientists and be like, hey, what do you guys know about this? And could it be possible that this could have caused some, could this have something to do with this case, with this Dialog Pass case? So he meets a bunch of scientists and basically gets introduced to this scientist with the last name uh, Bedard. So the theory that Donnie Eicher currently has is that boot rock, that rock that all the people were meeting at with the bodies. That was what was causing... was a giant rock and that the high power winds were hitting the rock resulting in an infrasound coming over the side of the mountain, which would induce the like lunacy yeah. that would cause the events of the night to happen. So he brings us up to this this scientist named Bedard. So he shows them the maps and images of Boot Rock. And Bedard is like, hey, have you heard of this thing called a Carmen Vortex Street? And he's like, what? So Bedard goes on to say, <laughs> Carmen Vortex Street, named after the Hungarian physicist Theodore von Karman, is an occurrence in fluid dynamics of both liquids and gases. In the aerodynamics of a weather phenomenon, air vortices or small tornadoes are created when wind of a certain speed hits a blunt object of a particular shape and size. Geographic masses around the world are known to cause this particular pattern of vortices. When these vortices are large or when they are revved up at a higher speed, they can reach the destructive threshold of a tornado. Mm-hmm. For instance, when strong wind hits the rock of Gibraltar, the powerful vortices spinning off the rock are believed to be the cause of capsized shift ships in the strait. These same destructive vortices are oftentimes accompanied by the twin danger of infrasonic frequencies. So this is a well-documented, yes, this is like studied thing. This and is there's famous cheered correct graphic locations where they occur frequently. Right. And so, Boot Rock is where he thinks is one of these locations. Yep. So that's his basically his theory is that these Carmen Vortex streets were created yeah. by high winds blasting onto boot rock causing basically the equivalent of mini tornadoes to be sent down the alley of the summit or, or of the mountain that they're on it's like down the side of the mountain where they're at so like these mini volcanoes are like flying volcanoes i mean volcano <laughs> tornadoes excuse yeah, me mini volcanoes flying <laughs> that's the fire orbs <laughs> every no. natural disaster is coming together <laughs> so <laughs> So these mini tornadoes are getting created by this Carmen Vortex Street. Carmen San Diego. Our, Carmen San Diego find these gumshoe hikers, <laughs> and they're flying past the tents. And this is not only like freaking the, like you know the nine hikers out for obvious reasons because there's tiny little tornadoes flying by, but they also have this infrasound like secondary component which is like driving them insane. So they basically go crazy, and are already freaked out the tornadoes. So they just panic and just bolt. And then in the, like, confusion and stuff, they they do not have, like, a... That would explain the shoes. That would explain the shoes. So, basically, this is his... They definitely could not have been in their right mind to run out with... For sure. To slash and run out without clothes or shoes. Right. So, he basically, like, writes a narrative version of what he thinks happened that night. And it can... The sound can, like, travel through the tent material... Yeah, right. So he he goes on to say, I'm skipping the beginning of this where he's just kind of setting everything up. Talking nonsense. But basically he says, outside the wind is picking up speed, falling somewhere between a whistle and a howl. The half-open entrance flaps urgently. Wow. <laughs> At last, Sasha and Chloe come inside and close up the three layers of toggle clasps, saying she, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, while some of the hikers continue to snack on cold food, Zena and Doroshenko set the camping stove in the center of the tent, made of folding cast iron panels and outfitted with a collapsible chimney that must be twisted into a proper shape. The stove is extremely ticky, tricky to put Wait, together. Wait, hold on, hold on. So they're inside the tent. Yeah, this so, is what he's he's like writing a narrative of the night. As yeah, to yeah. How, so know. here, let's 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 break it down a little more because this is like the definitive theory, right? That's his definitive theory, well, the, and the a guy lot who's of, researched it more than anyone in the world. Yeah, more or less. Besides the Russian government, right? But um, so first, yeah, people who's outside the tent, Sasha and who? The he said like in so his thing so he's saying like they were hiking earlier this day yeah they get, they set up a tent up the tent to go to sleep yep Zena and Doroshenko set the camping stove in the center of the tent made a folding so there's they found a camping so, stove what's a camping stove it's just like a small like camping pot that you can cook in you can put it in the tent yeah you can go in the tent they had and a stove you can in the like tent. cook it? it you can cook in the tent with a stove oh there's like a hole in the tent. Uh, I would or assume they're just they, huffing or, fumes because then that the whole story. <laughs> I I mean <laughs> that's I, the cause. <laughs> I think one is to assume that they have like an aeration device of some sort, either opening the front a little bit to like let the smoke out, or I mean they've mm. been doing this for days and days and days and yeah, days. Yeah, yeah, right. So um, the stove is extremely blah blah blah. Whatever. What's the next important thing to know? What uh, happens the, next? So for the past hour, the wind has been picking up speed as it moves over the dome of the mountain. But most alarming is its volume. The hikers are used to the haunting cry of mountain gales, but the wind's terrifying roar is closer to that of a freight freight train tearing down the hill past the tent. That sounds pretty scary. Or rather, a series of freight trains. Igor and his friends know nothing of this weather phenomenon, and their bodies begin to respond to it. They have no earthly idea of what is happening to them. Those who are lying down stir up an alarm. Their heads begin to pound as if they've all been struck with the same terrible migraine, and their chest vibrates strangely. These initial feelings of undetermined anxiety rapidly worsen until it manifests as full-blown excruciating terror. By the time the wind outside has reached an infrasonic threshold, the hikers are no longer just anxious about the wind. A deeper fear has set in. What is happening to us? This may not even be a question they are capable of posing to themselves. The, inf- the effects of the infrasonic frequency temporarily rob them of their rational minds, and they are now operating under the more primal instinct of flight response. All the hikers want to do is stop the dis- the intense discomfort to get away from it. It's as if the tent is a swiftly sinking ship. The hikers must abandon it at all costs, even the risk of drowning. Get out, get out, get out is all they can think. Sasha and Kolya undo the latches just long enough to allow them to push themselves out of the flaps. Out- so they go with the normal flaps. Yeah. Sasha and... Um, Sasha and Kolya go undo the, the latches just enough to allow them to push themselves out of the flaps at the bottom. Someone at the other end grabs the knife and hacks the back of the tent, but because the tent's walls are frozen with condensation, the first attempts don't take, and it's only the third stab that successfully tears through the canvas. The opening is just big enough for the hikers to push through, and one by one, they exit the tent and fly into the darkness. It is 25 degrees below zero. The hikers are insufficiently dressed, and in their stockinged feet, they are looking only for relief from the torment that has hijacked their bodies. But in fleeing the tent, they are only escaping from one pain into another. Though the seven men and two women cannot see it, the wind is tearing off the mountaintop in twin files of vortices. It is, in fact, the army of winter tornadoes, with each rotating column of air lugging the contours of the summit before spinning off either side of the slope these vortices barrel past the hikers at 40 miles per hour with an internal wind rotation between 113 and 157 miles per so hour. So it's just a bunch of mini tornadoes running by these people? Yeah, just flying around. So they're now 100 feet wide, 130 feet tall. In addition to all... Wait, the tornadoes are? Yeah. Holy shit. Yes. Yeah, so that's like based off of like the landscape and geography and like the... And no one studied like... it. Why don't they put like a little weather vane out there? Like, like, like a, that's like a thing that research happens. equipment. That's yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I that's a good. You point. can solve this mystery <laughs> right now with science. Uh, dear Whoever Russia is giving out research grants in Russia. <laughs> just toss one at these people. Uh, yep. So the group is separated early. The moon is not yet risen, and the night is pitch black. Kolya and Sasha, who are nearest the end, that's horrifying. Yeah, have brought their flashlights, but in the terminal turmoil, Sasha drops his in the snow. The combination of exiting the tent at different times and complete darkness results in the hikers dividing into smaller groups. Besides this, they can barely hear each other. In ideal conditions, the sound of their voices would carry a distance of 60 feet, but as they descend the slope with the winds in their back, the roar around them makes the communication nearly impossible. 
By the time the hikers have cleared the mountain and are nearing the tree line, the psychotropic effects of the infrasound begins to soften. The pain and, inf- and confusion has not left their bodies entirely, and the howl of the wind still echoes, but they are slowly gaining possession of rational thought and one by one the nine become overwhelmed with a completely different sort of disorientation it begins to occur to some what they have done as the cold pierces their feet a deep horror sets in they're standing in sub-zero conditions unable to make out a thing in the moonless night and have a little oh, idea of where they are in my relation God. to the tent that is bad that's a uh, no good just realizing that you were uh stuck in the being middle hypnotized of- by giant mountain tornadoes and yeah, <laughs> yeah. now you are standing barefoot in negative 25 degree weather and there's if they're all experienced they probably know they're all gonna die yeah they're probably like there's not one of them that's probably well, like, that, i'm gonna make it right so what they do okay so they are in fact roughly 300 yards away from the tent and divided into separate groups of four three and two luda kolya sasha and kolevitov xena rustic and igor and georgie and doroshenko the hikers likely realize at this point that fighting the wind all the way back up the slope in hopes of finding their tent in the dark would be impossible. Their only hope is to keep going with the wind at their backs deeper into the trees and focus on surviving until sunrise. This supposes that before then they don't succumb to hyperthermia. Okay, so the kid who like has half his underwear on, yeah, he has to be like I'm dead. <laughs> I mean, you even would... if the sun came up, yeah, like you're in, you're not in a good spot. Um. Their heart rates are still accelerated from their flight down the slope and from the shock of hitting sub-zero air, but in the coming hours, their heart rates and breathing will slow and a disorientation that had begun as a response to infrasonic waves will become a delirium brought on by extreme cold. Georgie and Doroshenko follow a path that's to the south that leads them across the frozen Loja River towards the woods, but they encounter deep snow in one of the river tributaries and are obstructed from entering into a thicker tree cover. So they move along the stream bed until they arrive at a large cedar tree. Here they stop for the night, not knowing just how far they have strayed from the others and from camp. Now begins their difficult task of starting a fire, a daunting prospect in total darkness. Doroshenko manages to climb the cedar tree and breaks off a small dry twigs for kindling, tossing them down to Georgie. When there are no more twigs, Doroshenko begins to saw at the thicker branches with a pocket knife, but because hypothermia is taking its toll on his coordination, he quickly loses his balance and falls from the top branches and onto the ground below. He injures himself and likely gets the wind knocked out of him, but this is nothing compared to the unbearable cold that is paralyzing both men. They are fortunate that the cedar is fairly dry wood capable of burning in this climate. Unlike fir or birch, additionally, the precaution of sewing matches into their clothing pays off, and with the help of the handkerchief to encourage the flame, the men are able to start a fire with the, ins- with the assembled twigs and branches. Better option would have to set the entire tree alight, which, is, which would likely have provided them with enough warmth for the rest of the night, but they were not thinking properly at this point, and this basic survival tactic doesn't Idiots. occur to either. <laughs> Just light the whole forest on fire. <laughs> Jump in. Be warm. (laughs) Instead of, instead they immediately collapse next to their modest fire, letting its warmth and strange sense of peace fall over them. Meanwhile, Kolya, Luda, Sasha, Kolevitov head in the opposite direction, just north of Georgie and Doroshenko. Kolya injures himself at some point, probably on the rocks, hiding just beneath the snow, causing him to lose his ability to walk and also loses his flashlight in the process. Now the four must grope blindly through the darkness. Sasha and Kolevitov carry the uninspired Kolya over the snow in the general direction of the trees, but without warning, they encounter a 24-foot precipice and tumble into the rock-lined ravine below. Kolya, Luda, and Sasha hit the rocks with massive force, all three sustaining grave injuries while Kolya's skull is dashed on the rocks. Because Kolya cushioned his fall, Kolevatov has managed to avoid serious injury, and his only concern now is saving the life of his friends. Perhaps he is able to communicate with them that they are losing consciousness, and in order to keep them warm, he spreads out a bed of fir twigs for them to lie on. He doesn't bother to build a fire as there is no fuel and the wood of the surrounding birch and fir trees holds too much moisture to ignite. But at some point, Kolevatov notices a glow coming from the other direction from which they came. The hope of reuniting with the others and and recruiting their help in saving those in the ravine is the only thing that compels his painfully frozen body for over 450 feet of snow in the direction of the flame. He reaches the cedar tree, finds Georgie and Doroshenko lying unconscious near an already smoldering fire. They were lucky to have started a fire at all, but with, when one is suffering from severe hypothermia, there is danger of after drop upon sudden reintroduction to heat a phenomenon that in fact decreases core body temperature the sudden warmth from the fire has had a strong soap soporific effect on the two men resulting in their slipping so soporific yeah so basically like they were so cold and then getting heat just basically was like put them out like made them unconscious their body was just like let's just go to sleep (laughs) pretty much dude don't even bother (laughs) so he posits that there was four people in the ravine Like, some I'm really cold and I get inside and warm, I'm worried I'm just going to pass out and die. So he thinks that Kolevatov, the reason he had the 
blunt force trauma to the head was because he also fell in the ravine, but he had managed to get out of the ravine and head back to these other two before falling and collapsing where they were. He was just like concussed or something. Yeah. So that's like his retelling of what he thinks happened. So at the end of the day, (laughs) there is really no good answer. There's one great answer. What's the great answer? Um, So there were three slashes in the back. Of the tent? Yeah. Yeah. Three talons on a large bird-like foot. You think a bear rolled up? No, th- a, a large bird-like foot. Oh, bird-like two foot. Two of which Yaga. were attached <laughs> to a large wooden structure. It was Baba Yaga. The end. Thank um, you. So, yeah. So, again, elite, like, I love this mystery because there's no answer. And, no. like, there's so many theories. And, and even, like, like, his that he claims is backed by science sounds very like, without context equally as ridiculous right. it was giant wind tornadoes that are loud yeah, right so make, like hypnotizingly loud noises that's what i'm saying is like it doesn't it might be because infrasound is not a commonly taught or yeah it's real it, like your average person doesn't know about the dangers of infrasound right particularly in the context of on a mountain it's just so it's like if you got a person who was like a like a fluid, like a physicist who ex- was an expert in fluid dynamics yeah. to comment, I would might buy into that more. Right. But I don't know. It's de- it's it's like one of those things where you're just like, I... You, I definitely subscribe to the people coming. You think, you think armed people rolled up and... Yeah, basically like... Because if you're an armed person, you don't... And in this kind of condition, you don't need to shoot someone to kill them. Yeah, you can just be like run, and they're gonna run off. But at the same die. time, what what armed people are just like walking around in the middle of the side, like basically th- Siberian wilderness? Which is why I think they, you know, maybe encountered or tracking them hadn't seen them before. I don't think if they came across them, it was like come across them. I think they somehow encountered them before and knew where they would be, and mm-hmm. came up on them and was like, "We're gonna kill all of them because something happened." Mm. It also, to bring it back, is very creepy that what's-her-name was like, I wonder if anything's going to happen. Yeah, right. Isn't that so creepy? Very creepy. I think... Something did happen. Something did happen, and to quote Yuri... Well, she kept writing in her diary. <laughs> <laughs> to quote Yuri Yudin, he says... This is, this is actually a quote that starts the book, but it's also a pretty good quote to end on. He says, If I could ask God just one question... It would be what really happened to my friends that night. Yuri Yudin. That's great. So that's the Dyatlov Pass incident. Now, this is going to be like a three-part episode. There's so much information. There's a lot to unpack. All right, thanks for listening to episode one of Monday Morning Macabre. Um, more about the Dialov Pass incident can be found uh, on Donnie Eicher's book, which we use as source material. It's called Dead Mountains, available on Amazon. And uh, if you want to know more about the incident, go to www.dialovepass.com. We do not have any affiliation with this site, but it was very helpful for pictures and other information of that nature and we're also on twitter instagram facebook at monday morning cob although i believe twitter is something one of different we'll get, we'll get better about it as yeah. we actually use them but instagram monday morning cob facebook i'm pretty sure i think it's twitter that's they're also like, not they're li- they're going to be links through our site yeah um, so you can get to us check the way. website we got we got all the links through there and will be available anywhere you can find a podcast yeah we'll be distributed everywhere so thank you so much for listening to our first episode. And thank you. And goodbye. Stay ma- macabre. <laughs> Stay, <laughs> We're workshopping. Stay macabre. <laughs> A catchphrase. Goodbye.